The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Our guest today is the award-winning medical doctor, Jane Orient, also known as Dr. Ann Jane, on her Twitter page. Dr. Orient is an Arizona-based physician in private practice who focuses on general internal medicine. She's the executive director of Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. She's also the president of Doctors for Disaster Preparedness and was the recipient of that organization's Edward Teller Award and many other awards and honors from other organizations. Dr. Orient has twice been Southern District Director of the Arizona Medical Association and is involved in a number of other professional societies. She is the author of many books, op-ed pieces, and scientific papers, and on December 8th testified in front of the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee on treatment for COVID-19. So we're certainly fortunate to have you on the show, Dr. Orient. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, that's great. Well, Jay, I know you're on the show, too. <laughs> of course. I, I'm, I'm dying to ask Jane uh, some questions. The first question I'd like to ask uh, Dr. Orient is, is kind of a funny thing. Uh, I would like to know, uh, Dr. Orient, uh, if you can think of anything the government has really done right during this entire COVID pandemic. I doubt it. I haven't. That's not, nothing has occurred to me yet. Well, that's kind of what I expected you uh, would say. So my next question is, what what do you think has been the worst thing they've done? I think the worst thing is they have been suppressing freedom of speech. They've been suppressing information. They have been making it difficult or even impossible for patients to get early treatment in some areas. They have been completely blacking out information on how to protect yourself effectively by taking care of your, your immune system. I mean, Anthony Fauci admits to taking 8,000 units of vitamin D a day, but he doesn't tell anybody about that. One doctor's even had that information purged from his website. I mean, nobody is saying, oh, this is the big cure for COVID-19, but it is a necessity that every year we have what we call flu season, but it really is vitamin D deficiency season. If you do not have enough of this hormone, then you cannot, you cannot fight effectively against respiratory illnesses. Well, I have firsthand experience with one of the points you made where people have been unable to get out and uh, check on their problems with their doctor 
with the regularity that they had previously and have been uh, negatively uh, affected by it, uh, even to the point where uh, uh, one acquaintance uh, died and may very likely not have because uh, she did not get constant and regular medical treatment for her uh, existing problems. Uh, the the next question I want to ask is, is you know really a, a very simple one. You ran a meeting that I spoke at last August in Las Vegas, and pretty much uh, there were about a hundred people in attendance. Most of them were medical doctors or PhDs, and without anybody announcing a protocol in the meeting rooms, no one wore a mask. And everyone looked around and say, well, I guess I'm not wrong about this because all of my educated colleagues feel the same way. Where do you, what is the point of masks? Is there any point? Are they positive? Are they negative? There's been a huge amount of discussion about that, plus even more discussion that's been squelched. Las Vegas is very interesting. The hotel did mandate masks and you had to wear one in the hall. And they had to enforce it lest the gaming commission shut them down. But once in the meeting room, they really didn't pay any attention. And we all had a glass of water so we could pretend to be drinking. But uh, everybody there, I think, made their own independent decision that this made no sense at all. And so I don't think anybody in the room was wearing a mask. They also split the room in half. They said you could have only 50 people in a room. So they put this air wall down the middle, which meant that the concentration of people in the room was just the same, but it sure made a lot of difficulty for our audiovisual technician. It really went well, though. I mean, considering the hoops they made us jump through, the meeting was hugely successful thanks to uh, you and the people that that helped you with it. it. It went very well. I was most amused by I think there were probably three talks about masks. And uh, the one that really struck me, which I've shared with so many people, was a, uh, a woman who uh, was a surgeon who wore a mask regularly at work. And she explained the primary purpose of her mask was to be sure that she did not drool into an incision uh, that she was operating on. And I know everybody got a laugh at it, but she gave also lots of details of the ineffectiveness of the masks in having any impact on uh, the virus communication at all. Well, the other reason the surgeon wears a mask is he doesn't want to get squirted in the face with the patient's blood. (laughs) (laughs) I I had a question. What is it about the mask that is perhaps detrimental, but certainly not effective? Why, Why is that the case? Well, before 2020, all of the evidence in the literature about the effectiveness of masks in preventing transmission of of, um, respiratory diseases was negative. Only after 2020 did a few articles begin to appear that showed it might possibly have some effect, although you couldn't really tell because a lot of other things were going on. The only controlled study out of Denmark said maybe it had an effect, but there was a 26% possibility that it increased the rate of infection. I mean, we've even demonstrated that with surgeons, their oxygen saturation drops a little bit when they're on the mask, which is something you really don't want to be happening to your surgeon. What is it that would increase the incidence of the disease by wearing a mask? 
Is that due to touching your face and that sort of thing? Could be touching your face or could be that you're inhaling all the germs that you're trying to exhale. You just inhale them back in. Do you recommend then that people wear masks? And when they're going into stores, if they have the option, in some cases they do, do you recommend it or I guess not? eh? Well, I know that I hyperventilate this the second I put one on, but I wear one when it's required. Uh, One reason for wearing is you don't want to be assaulted by some of your fellow shoppers who are panic stricken that somebody might be breathing, breathing the same air without that filthy rag in front of their face. There's one interesting thing that probably neither of you are aware of. Uh, Dr. Orion has seen me at many meetings uh, show my carbon dioxide meter that I carry with me everywhere to show that in any lecture hall that I'm speaking at, the carbon dioxide content is two to three times more than it is outside, uh, which now is around 415 parts per million. I've checked the carbon dioxide content behind uh, my mask, and it's in the thousands. And it's funny that uh, it never occurred to uh, the people that are alarmist with regard to carbon dioxide's impact on our uh, planet. Uh, Nobody has pointed out that uh, we have forced uh, the entire population of people that went along with the masks to absorb more carbon dioxide than probably they ever have in their life. And remembering that the Supreme Court ruled that carbon dioxide is a contaminant, allowing the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to control it. Uh, If we had really acted uh, on that aspect of it, we might have been able to loosen that up. But nobody chose uh, to deal with the fact. And of course, when I lecture about carbon dioxide, I explain that on the average in every submarine, the carbon dioxide content uh, stays around 5,000 and rises up to 8,000. And there has never been an illness. So from a carbon dioxide standpoint, uh, the masks uh, didn't hurt anyone. It may have for a lot of other reasons, but it would have been nice perhaps if we had started a campaign to show uh, how harmless carbon dioxide is. I brought one of those meters like you have. Well, it has a little thing on it. You can stick it under your mask. And I did test it on a number of masks that were there. And in most cases, it goes up off scale to greater than 10,000 parts per, per million within a couple of minutes. Of course, you're not entirely breathing that because air is going not only through your mask, but around it. But nevertheless, OSHA would not allow you to work in an environment that had something that high. So if you're getting thousands of parts per million inside your mask, do you think, Dr. Orient, that that would actually impede your your functioning, your ability to make good decisions or to exercise or things like that? Well, we we do know that, that the blood gases on people who are wearing masks are generally okay, but they do hyperventilate a little bit to compensate for this, and it throws off their acid-base balance a little bit. It means that they're getting a little less oxygen than they otherwise would. And neurologists have expressed the concern that, especially for children whose brain is developing very rapidly, this could be in the long run very detrimental. Or perhaps Mm -hmm. older people who are might be more likely to get a bit demented. Or just in your surgeon, his oxygen level is just not quite right. 
at a time when he really needs to be at the top of his abilities making decisions. In the early years when I was competing in the Hawaiian Ironman uh, contest, I would train running with a backpack that forced me uh, to reduce, that took the oxygen out of the air and gave me more carbon dioxide. And it was to simulate running at high altitude, running with less oxygen, so that when I did run with a full complement of oxygen, I might be able to run a little faster. It never occurred to me that it could have had any, uh, <laughs> any negative impact on me, but it actually, I felt, was a positive uh, way to train. Well, that was just during training, but you probably have heard about the, the young woman who, who was making a record in the 800-meter dash at her school but was forced to run in a mask. And toward the end of the race, she became so oxygen depleted that she couldn't see or hear. She face planted over the finish line and had a concussion. Now, uh, now she didn't die, but I understand that a couple of Chinese teenagers did die in China when they were forced to run in a mask, which really makes absolutely no sense as far as preventing infection. Mm -hmm. You know, I worked at Transport Canada in their airworthiness department. And at one point, they were considering banning smoking on long haul flights. And I actually supported it because the research I did said that, of course, they share the air throughout the whole cabin, the not just the pilot's cabin, but the, the passenger's cabin. And that by the end of a seven hour flight, if they had a lot of smoking in the plane, the pilot's visual acuity would actually drop somewhat. So I made the argument that this would be a safety concern if they're landing at night in a storm and they even have a small reduction in visual acuity. So they actually ban smoking on flights. And yet now, <laughs> I don't know, I guess they have to wear masks on the airplanes. Is that right? I, I don't know about the pilot. The passengers, I guess, certainly do. Yeah, yeah the pilot has to when he comes into the uh, into the cabin, uh, the pilot and co-pilot and, and navigator, if they're three in the cockpit, uh, one of my closest friends, American Airline pilot, they do not have to wear uh, masks in the cockpit. And he's even said for a, a short trip uh, to the bathroom compartment, which is near the cockpit, uh, he doesn't bother to wear a mask and hasn't gotten any trouble. Huh. Well, that's good. So it sounds like overall the mask is very, if any, positive benefit and certainly has negative. So I guess <laughs> this mandate of masks, does it make any sense at all, uh, Dr. Rain? Well, if you don't have COVID, there's no way you can give it to somebody. And yeah. Most people don't have COVID. And if you do get it, you're, you're over it in a, a couple of weeks. So putting a mask on everybody, I mean, it's not like in, a, in, in the hospital where you know patients are infected. And that makes some sense if you have personnel who are using their mask properly. If they're throwing it away frequently, they're not touching it. Um, that, that's a whole lot different from having people sticking it in their pocket and then mm -hmm. throwing it on the sidewalk. So I've been hearing uh, that people that work in hospitals are actually having migraines and, and some reaction to eight hours a day with a mask on. Is that not surprising, I guess? Well, it's quite frequent. Like maybe 80% of the people complain of a headache when they have to wear a mask all day long. And I think that's maybe partly due to the to the increased level of carbon dioxide they're inhaling and mm -hmm. a bit of oxygen deprivation.
Mm-hmm. I'm kind of more concerned with the people I see out taking a walk by themselves with a mask uh, or walking with someone else. I've seen people riding a bike and I saw one high school basketball game where they made all the players wear them. What concerns me like an individual out for a walk by themselves with a mask is the their willingness to conform to government direction. I, I think that's one of the most important thing this particular administration is getting out of the pandemic is a feeling that they can make the population conform. I would like to think that's a very, very small percentage of people and that uh, eventually they're really going to get fed up and not be friendly toward this administration. Well, this is how you enforce discipline is by making people do something stupid. I think that's one thing that they did in concentration camps. They're trying to brainwash Americans is they get them used to just following orders, however stupid they obviously are. You know, I was uh, a recruiter for the uh, the Navy during my many years in uh, reserve. And I became a student of exactly what you say, Dr. Orient, uh, with regard to concentration camps and how they were able to control large numbers of prisoners with small numbers of guards. And it was just uh, drilling them uh, to on discipline of, of dumb and stupid things. And it was like the prisoners felt well, uh, they weren't being tortured. They weren't being punished. They just had to do these little things, which generally were sitting in a courtyard many, many hours a day listening to North Korean dialectic and uh, go along with it. And they, they lost their the independence that most Americans uh, grow up with. My next question for you is, I would like to know, how did Dr. Fauci keep his job even under the Trump administration. I've never understood that. Uh, Unless you're a radical leftist, you generally don't like Dr. Fauci. You don't think highly of him. You've heard a a whiff of the fact that he's responsible for sending bad stuff over to the Wuhan China biological laboratory. What has kept him in office all this time? That's a really good question. I mean, he's 80 years old. He could have retired many years ago. He's been sitting at the top of the NIH uh, for 40 years during all types of epidemics. He was in charge of the AIDS crisis. How many people in, in the world have died of AIDS? You know, a million of them. At the beginning, perhaps that might have been contained, but he refused to do what, what took then. Many people have suggested that he's responsible for as many as 16,000 AIDS patients dying of pneumocystis pneumonia solely because he prevented doctors from letting them know that if they took a simple uh, prophylactic called Bactrim, that they might that might be prevented. Oh, there were no randomized controlled trials. Well, he was pushing for a much more expensive drug at that time. He has many conflicts of interest. And you know, people keep treating him almost as a saint and a guru and as an expert on everything. And I don't understand it. When you say he has conflicts of interest, do you mean that he has investments in vaccines or things like that? Yeah, I think that he has all kinds of connections that enable him to uh, profit from the decisions that he makes. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we could just take a step back. 
Who are the people who are most at risk to COVID-19? Well, I think that it's turned out to be people who are already sick with something else or who are quite elderly, plus mm -hmm. people who have vitamin D deficiency. I mean, there's all this concern about the disparity between blacks and other minorities in the death rates, but nobody's looking at their vitamin D levels. And people who have more um, pigment in their skin are blocking out ultraviolet light, which is what you need to make vitamin D. In fact, in India, they're probably telling people the opposite of the truth, saying through dark skin, you don't need so much sunlight. But the fact is you do need, you need more sunshine. So instead mm -hmm. of looking at the, at the biological factors that may make people more susceptible, they're trying to say, well, it's, it's people's bad attitudes toward them. What kind of level of vitamin D would you recommend for an average person who isn't in fact? Well, I think probably a level of 50 is protective. If it ought to be at least 20, but many people have levels that are much lower than that, especially so, at the end of the winter. How does uh, an individual, I mean, this is a little bit off uh, the topic, but perhaps more important or as important as anything we'll talk about in this hour. How does one uh, go about getting a vitamin D uh, level test to find out if they're somewhere between 20 and 50 or over that? It's, it's just a blood test. Go to the lab and ask for a vitamin D3 level. Tom and I are, are both very athletic and outdoors a lot uh, and, and extraordinarily uh, healthy. Uh, I've always thought, well, a lot of it had to do with exercise, a little bit of genes, a lot of luck, but I've always thought vitamin D was the most important because the, while my father did not teach me a lot, he he did teach me the joy of being outdoors and uh, getting uh, more sun than most people. And of course, then we were all told to be scared of the sun. And that really brought people inside the last 20 years than they were uh, 20 years before. So uh, this is, I think, very good for our audience to hear. And I don't think, uh, Dr. Orient, that I have read an article about any disease in the last 10 years where a mention of a vitamin D deficiency wasn't part of exacerbating the disease. I think that's probably true, but there have been articles in the literature trying to debunk it, all of them using inadequate levels of vitamin D. And you may think you're okay because you're outside and maybe you don't slather yourself with sunscreen, but um, one doctor's husband thought, well, he would be okay because he lived in Yuma and golfed all the time she insisted they get a level and he was deficient. That is uh, interesting and, and surprising. Let me uh, ask you whether you feel there is clear evidence of China's role. We talked a lot about it in our uh, article. Uh, I was fortunate to talk to a former CIA agent long before what we had was considered a, a, a pandemic, and she had clear and on-site evidence of what was going on in Wuhan and uh, their biological lab and the fact that uh, Fauci had been responsible for uh, sending some virus to Wuhan to test that uh, his people were not allowed to test here. Where do you stand on the role of, uh, of China in this pandemic? I don't know whether we're going to find out since the people who may have been responsible were in charge of doing 
the investigation, but gain-of-function research apparently has clearly been going on, much of it funded by the United States government. And there are just a lot of strange time coincidences that have happened. So I, I think it's a very real possibility that this is not just one of those zoonotic viruses that jumped species, uh, that there may have been some gain of function that was done, that it may have leaked from the lab. We know biowarfare has been investigated for decades by many, by many uh, agents, but we know that even if the, there was no deliberate release, accidents happen. The security measures at the Wuhan Institute of Virology were not, not those that really should be required for working with something extremely dangerous. I've heard that term, gain of whatever. What is that again, and what does it mean? It means that the, the virus is genetically manipulated to be able to do things it couldn't do before, like maybe attach to human cells better, to have the parts of the protein that does that cleaved more easily. Some parts of other viruses, like the HIV virus spliced in. I'm not a virologist, and I, I'm really not in a position to evaluate these and say things. I can just say there are a lot of uh, speculations, maybe, out mm -hmm. there, and no good way of independently either confirming them or refuting them. So gain of function, it's that it's actually increasing its ability to do things. Yes. Mm -hmm. I see. We're going to have to take a break for the commercials, but We'll be right back after the break. And one of the things we'll be talking about is the business of social distancing, quarantine, school closings, whether that makes any sense. The fact that our society has been locked down, at least here in Canada, we're still locked down. We'll talk about whether that actually is necessary and whether, in fact, the benefits are nowhere near as bad as the negative impact. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after the break. Because of COVID-19, the average American worries about their immune health four times a day. That's 112 times per year. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains 15 full doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day pill-free gel pack. It tastes great, is convenient on the go, and it's more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. incredible years and we're just getting started well they say time flies when you're having fun well it also flies by when you're on a mission of love love of country that is well our goal is to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity you can listen in on our free apps on apple android or alexa AmericaOutloud.com. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. 
listen on iHeartRadio or our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Well, welcome back to the show. Dr. Orient, one of the things that we've been talking about is whether or not these lockdowns are are necessary because we're hearing constantly we have to shut down our society. I mean, has this been worthwhile? Has there actually been a positive correlation between the lockdowns and the reduction of the disease spreading? If you look at, at statistics from all over the world, which have had vastly different policies about this, of course, there are many differences in, in the countries also, but there is no correlation at all between the severity of the lockdown and the death rate from the disease or even the, uh, the spreading of the disease. I, I just don't think it's possible to make a case that, that it's done any good, but it has mm-hmm. unquestionably done a huge amount of harm. Yeah. Here in Canada, we've had a couple of professors do studies of cost-benefit analysis, one of them at the University of Alberta, Dr. Joffe, you might have heard of him. And he found that there was at least a 10 to 1 ratio for the cost benefit when you looked at the negative impacts on other health concerns. And the same thing with another professor at the University of uh, Simon Fraser in British Columbia. They're, they're showing that the costs of the shutdown with regards to damaged health in other ways is far more severe than COVID ever could be. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. And as Dr. Lair pointed out at first, just the denial of medical care, like for a while in Texas, any type of non-essential surgery was forbidden. And it was the government that decided what was essential. And people were, were having their procedures denied for things like serious sinus infections. By the time they finally got around to their surgery, it eroded into their brain. So we have no idea how many people suffered how much from having things that the government considered non-essential delayed. Plus, a lot of hospital facilities just had to close down. They didn't have the personnel to staff them. They didn't have the revenue to keep them going. And so when you say, well, maybe our ICUs are going to be overloaded. Well, yeah, if you shut half of them down, that one shouldn't be a surprise. We published in our our article that you can read in America out loud all during the coming week, we published the numbers of deaths in the United States during the year 2020, which we uh, obtained from the Centers for Disease Control. And uh, the, the, the numbers are somewhat surprising based on what has been bandied around for uh, COVID deaths, but it would appear they're listing 377,883 uh, total population deaths, of which uh, 305,000 were over the age of 65, and only 721 were uh, younger than 24. And our schools have been closed for most of a year. That rate of of death could be any number of things in the uh, young population. So it's really been a disaster. I've made a rather sad uh, joke over the last year that I've never heard of anybody dying of old age, because no matter if you were an elderly person and you had tested positive for COVID at any time at all, and you died of of heart disease or cancer or anything, you were listed as a COVID death. So that 377,000 in the total population is also 
quite incorrect. I, I think that's exactly right. And even Deborah Burks admitted you had a hard time telling death from COVID, from death with COVID. There was a lot of incentive to put COVID on the death certificate. So I think the statistics are so slanted that the only thing that's really reliable is the all-cause mortality rate. And while that did have a spike for a time in the height of the epidemic, it is pretty much down to background in most parts of the world. What would you say that the real uh, death rate from COVID is? It is a half or a tenth, or do you have any ideas to what it likely is? Some people say it's a tenth, but you know, I don't know. It's really hard, hard to say. But mm-hmm. it's hard to find and un- maybe impossible to find an unbiased source of statistics. Some people claim it's underestimated. That's mm-hmm. why I say we've got to look at the all-cause mortality rate because death is pretty, pretty definite. Yeah. In Canada, they've never done what you might call a random sampling of the population to see how many people percentage-wise actually have the virus and are asymptomatic. In the United States, have they done random testing? I know they did in Santa Clara County in California, but aside from that, are they doing random testing to try and determine the real incidence of the disease? I don't think so, but it also depends on the type of test that you do. This PCR test, that is the one that's been used most places, and it may be even impossible to find out what the cycle threshold was. If the cycle threshold is 40, it probably means that it's a false positive. With any diagnostic test, even if it's really good, if you test a lot of asymptomatic people, then the rate of false positives is going to be very high. And if you take one that even WHO has now admitted has been grossly exaggerating the positivity rate, you're just having a way of scaring people to death and not not really making any useful things. I think what we really ought to want to know is how many people have antibodies, which tells you how many people have been infected and have recovered, give you an idea of how close we are to herd immunity. Oh, and would that be perhaps a random blood test then done in the population? Right, I think that that would be, yes. Uh Uh-huh, I see. Now, the Great Barrington Declaration has received huge numbers of doctors signing it against the lockdown. What do you think of that declaration? Is Is it really reputable? Well, I signed it. There were a whole lot of reputable people on it huge number of physicians and scientists from all over mm-hmm. the world. But it's, it's really just common sense. It looks at the evidence. The lockdowns are not doing any good. We know they're doing harm. We know what group of people are, being, are susceptible to the disease. Those are the ones that we need to protect. And mm-hmm. one way to protect them is to get the rest of the population immune as fast as possible. Tom, many of our yeah, listeners might not be aware that uh, you and I represent two different countries, uh, Canada and the United States. And uh, for those of our listeners in the United States may not be aware that things are worse in Canada than they are in the United States. And uh, I can give one uh, firsthand example of that. I'm a big ice hockey fan and the Stanley Cup uh, ice hockey championship of the NHL is going on now. And the American ice hockey arenas are uh, filling up very rapidly, being allowed by the governors of their states. And there is not a single person allowed to go into a 
Canadian uh, arena, which is really sad for everybody in Canada. And of course, in baseball, the Toronto Blue Jays had to move temporarily to Florida out of Canada in order to be able to uh, play in the uh, American Baseball League. Uh, so Canada's situation is more draconian than the uh, United States. And it's uh, it's very, very unfortunate. Yeah, and they have very severe penalties, too. They have curfews just across the river at certain times of night, with the other side of the river being Quebec. I mean, these kinds of things are draconian, to say the least. They're even arresting pastors, uh, church leaders who are holding services in different ways. They're, spent, they're spending time in jail. I think we're the only country probably outside of communist China that are imprisoning religious leaders for things that most people would consider normal behavior. So yeah, Canada has got extreme lockdown. Sadly, our government is conservative, believe it or not, in Ontario. And he's shut down the province firmly, like just really incredible. And it's, it's destroying businesses and lives and all sorts of things. But, I, you know, I sent them a cost-benefit analysis, this one from Dr. Jaffe, and I asked the government if they'd actually done their own cost-benefit analysis. And I got a silly answer that didn't even answer the question. So I wrote back to them and said, well, that's very nice, but have you done a cost-benefit analysis? Nobody's answering. So apparently they haven't. Like in the United States, have anybody done cost-benefit analysis that you're aware of, Dr. Orion? Oh, no, it's just, if it only saves one life, and it, it doesn't matter how many lives it costs, from suicide, from drug abuse, from denied medical care, or just, it, it's, it, it's just amazing that the government can be allowed to trample on all our rights without even beginning to count the cost. You mentioned the word suicides, and in our, uh, the statistics we got from the Center of Disease Control, and I, I don't know the background of it, but I was shocked to find out automobile accidents in 2020 cost 42,000 lives, and suicides cost 44,000 lives. I don't know if that is a, uh, a spike. I expect it is an increase. Do you know any data on that, uh, Dr. Orient? I, be I believe that, that it is an increase, and I've seen some pretty shocking things that like maybe one quarter of young people in their teenage years, I think, have at least contemplated suicide. Tom and I, uh, in our article, correctly or incorrectly, compared the, the current pandemic to the Spanish flu in the early uh, 20th century. And uh, I wondered if you people have heard of the Spanish flu as being something quite terrible. Uh, can you recall any history of it, of whether it would be have been greater or worse? Well, it was one of the most terrible epidemics in history. One of the worst thing, features was that it killed young people, sometimes very, very rapidly. That if you had a, a train full of soldiers being heading off to training camp or something, maybe a tenth of them would be dead before they had arrived. I was reading that there is 50 million dead. And uh, of course, many died perhaps that weren't counted. And of course, the population was much, much less. So it sounds like it's two orders of magnitude anyways, greater deaths per capita than COVID. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Yeah, one of our ancestors actually was a nurse and she passed away from the disease in 1918. I've been looking at all these different statements, the Canadian Health Alliance, the um, American, America's frontline doctors, there seems to be a lot of groups speaking out, but 
at least in Canada, they're not really being paid attention to. What about in the U.S.? Are the governors listening to all these different medical groups that are saying the impact of the lockdown is so much worse than the disease ever could be? Maybe some places, Florida, Texas, mm -hmm. South Dakota, they're listening to physicians or not. I don't know, but there are a lot of forces trying to shut them up and mm -hmm. ban them from social media. So no one can yeah. hear what they're saying. Well, you know, that brings up another point, and that is what we should call the virus. I mean, it's interesting that Epoch Times, who are Chinese Americans who actually escaped from communism, are saying that we should call it CCP, Chinese Communist Party virus, because in reality, the Communist Party were the ones who were suppressing the doctors who wanted to warn people about it and speak out. In fact, some of them have just disappeared. So, I mean, instead of calling it COVID-19, what do you think of calling it the CCP virus? Well, I think that, that that would be considered racist, although a lot of viruses throughout history have been named just for the place where they were, where they were found. I mean, the Spanish flu, mm -hmm. for example, would be certainly not uh, restricted to Spain. It's mm -hmm. just, uh, but, but it does make a lot of sense uh, yeah. to call it the CCP virus. And maybe the, the World Health Organization provided this other name and certainly was yeah. in collusion with the CCP in trying to say initially that there's no evidence that this is spread person to person. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because Epoch Times makes the point that CCP virus is not racist because many in China, of course, hate the CCP as much as anybody else, and that they have been the primary victims of the communists in China. These are um, ethnic Chinese in the United States and Canada. Same thing with the dance troupe. Shen Yun, I'm not sure of the exact name, but regardless, they're saying that, yeah, they're calling it the CPP virus. I also, and these are ethnic Chinese. Well, I'm just saying that if you do something that our government doesn't like, it's called racist, even if that doesn't make any sense. We've done two radio shows on uh, woke and the critical race theory, and we're going to do uh, actually more in that area. So uh, th that's the new thing. You don't like what someone says, you call them racist. But you mentioned uh, the World Health Organization, and I keep reading that China currently controls the World Health Organization. I don't know that I understand that. I wondered if uh, you have any knowledge of that. It certainly provides a lot of the funding and also probably got Dr. Tedros, I mean, that's his first name, and he's a, not a doctor of medicine, elected over a British person who was much more qualified. Dr. Tedros was a uh, really a political activist. He was, he was in charge of the Ministry of Health in Ethiopia. Under his reign, he denied the existence of, the of a cholera epidemic three times so that it probably killed a lot more people than otherwise would have, probably interfered with the malaria control programs. He has certainly not done anything good for public health in Ethiopia and has no claim to expertise, but he does seem to follow the communist Chinese party line on anything. Now, here's the actual group, the Performing Arts Troupe. They were founded by classically trained Chinese artists from around the world. It's called Shen Yun Performing Arts Troupe. My family actually went to see that, and they said they were pretty fantastic. Anyway, this is what they say on their website. The CPP virus, the name holds the CPP accountable for its cover-up and disregard for human life. 
And that's exactly what the Epoch Times is saying. And I'll just read a quick quote from them. They say the name holds the CPC accountable for its wanton disregard of human life and consequent spawning of a pandemic that has put untold numbers in countries around the world at risk while creating widespread fear and devastating the economies of nations trying to cope with the disease. And that's a statement from the board of the Epoch Times, which again is Chinese Americans. They're certainly not racist against Chinese. So that's what we're calling it, the CP, CCP virus, CCP virus. And I think it makes a lot of sense. I want to move from the World Health Organization back to the Center for Disease Control. Many decades ago, I've always held the, the uh, CDC up to the highest level of prestige uh, of all government agencies. And I'm seeing cracks in that facade. And I wondered if you've seen a change in the CDC due to politics, perhaps, over the last decade. There's an article in a recent issue of the Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons about the CDC and the fact that it now is really part of the public-private partnership, has a huge number of financial interests. There's a list of of its partners. Some of them are profit-making companies, some of them are other types of organizations. But this type of influence is pervasive in the CDC. And I think that we cannot rely on it either for competence or for integrity. And certainly in the case of this epidemic, it has contradicted itself so many times, starting out with telling us it's nothing to worry about. Then never don't wear a mask, do wear a mask. So you don't really have to No, you should wear two masks. It's I think it's just really, um, unfortunately, its response has thrown this formerly much respected agency into disrepute and people are really becoming very distrustful. What about the World Health Organization? Has their credibility gone down the drain with this event too? It should have. The National Institutes of Health went through this a couple decades ago. They began to lose credibility when their research proposal program had such amazing bias. In other words, if you did not apply for a grant on a proposal that went along with the views of the top people or committees at NIH, your chances of getting a grant were very, very small, and it's gotten worse and uh, worse. And of course, it's true in all uh, areas of science, probably worst of all in climate change, you don't have a snowball's chance in hell of getting a contract to study uh, the opposite of man-caused climate change. If you wrote a proposal saying you're trying to gather data and show that man's impact on his climate is quite insignificant, uh, there wouldn't be any point in uh, putting print on paper or buying postage to send it in. Well, and worse than that, if you do get a grant and the results turn out to be displeasing to them, you may never get another one. And you're right. It's not just with respect to this COVID virus, but with respect to all areas of science, which are now virtually dependent on government funding. And academic departments, even if they have a big endowment, enough of their program depends on government grants that they are not going to criticize 
the dogma, the accepted government dogma like on climate change without fearing they're going to put their whole department at risk. Our yeah. audience might be interested to know how uh, the government control of research uh, began and now is, uh, is almost uh, total. It all started with how fabulous a job the government did in assembling scientists to create the atomic bomb at the end of World War II called the Manhattan Project. And it was so successful that President Eisenhower's uh, chief scientist, Vannevar Bush, talked him into creating government research uh, agencies that biased private people ultimately got control of. And, and all of our research took a, a downward trend from that point on. It, it goes back long ago. Well, Eisenhower himself warned about the dangers of the government industrial complex, but his warning has proved to be prescient, but nobody's paying regard to it. You know, it strikes me that a lot of this violates the principles of classical liberalism that our Western society was founded on. I mean, the whole idea of standing up for the right to speak out and and uh, rational debate and not having intimidation and things like that. So, I mean, it sounds like the, the left now are becoming the opponents of what used to be classical liberalism. Would you agree with that? Oh, yes, I would. And I think that Lysenkoism is taking hold in American science. I mm -hmm. think that we're getting the equivalent of what the Nazis did with Jewish science. People who have a science that does not agree with the left's dogma is getting treated the same way. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should start to point out more and more that they are violating the principles that they originally said they supported. Yeah, you can point that out, but I don't think that, that, that it matters because what they're about is power, not about being consistent or being mm -hmm. true to the uh, principles of science. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look to the future, where do you see this virus going? I mean, will we ever get rid of it entirely, or is it going to be with us in some form forever? Probably with us in some form forever, like the common cold virus. We never got rid of that. Will there be waves of it? Is it a bioengineered virus? Uh, will there be more deliberate or accidental releases of it? But the other thing is that there are a lot of agencies and a lot of government uh, officials who have gotten a whole lot more power than they used to have. And people never give up this power. Uh, voluntarily. Do you see that we're going to see a reduction, generally speaking, in cases continuing, or are, are we going to have some sort of a permanent lockdown here in Canada? <laughs> well, they've changed the definition of a positive PCR test, I understand. So I think maybe politically to make it look better for the incoming administration here. So maybe we'll have fewer cases and we can say, aha, our administration helped to defeat this virus and what we did was we changed the definition of a case. I'm an eternal uh, optimist, and uh, I think that the power of politicians has played a huge role in doing everything wrong with regard to the pandemic. And I'm hopeful that the vast majority of the American public, and I can't speak for Canada, uh, is going to get tired of the power that politicians at all levels have had over them and might be inclined in our next election cycle of 2022 uh, to throw out the people that have supported this level of power and 
vote for people that will run uh, against it. Uh, that might be overly optimistic, but it's my view, and I'm going to stick to it until I find out different in November of uh, 2022. But how do you feel about the role of, of political power in making everything worse in the pandemic? I hope that you're right, uh, Jay. And as Edward Teller said, it's your duty to be an optimist or else you'll never do anything. But the left is doing everything it can to consolidate its grip on power. And the population, is it doing more critical thinking or is it all going around feeling either scared or guilty for, uh, for not abiding by what St. Fauci says? Well, we can't really know the answer to that because the left controls the media at every level. And, you know, there are radio stations like ours and, uh, and a few others and talk radio and some conservative newspapers like uh, Epoch Times. But uh, we're, we're bathed in biased media. And until we get to another election uh, cycle, we really we can't know the answer to that. But one of the things I say to our audience every week is if they agree with the kind of things that we're talking about, and our great guests like Dr. Orient have said, share it with your friends that are neutral. I mean, you're not going to make a conservative out of a leftist, but there are an awful lot of people that are fairly neutral on these things, I think, that could easily be uh, turned to what are the right answers to these questions. I had a quick question for Dr. Orient. When you testified before the Senate committee, what sort of reception did you get and, and what were you actually telling them? I was telling them about the resistance of the government to accurate information about early treatment and for making it very difficult and even impossible sometimes for people to get long established repurposed drugs. The reaction of the Democrats boycotted the hearing entirely except for the minority of what you call the ranking person coming in and and making statements about all of the witnesses, including me, as being anti-science and not worth listening to. And then he left, uh, got a very um, article in the New York Times calling us all kinds of names. And the, the minority was not there, or the Democrats at that time, to ask any questions. All huh. they did was deplore, deplore the fact that we were there and not even bother to uh, ask questions. Wow. So violating the old classical liberal principles completely. Correct. Well, I'd like to give you one more point of optimism you can really take to the bank. There's, there's virtually zero chance that uh, the Republicans do not take back the House. They will take it back for sure. I think they'll take back the Senate as well. We'll still be stuck with uh, Mr. Biden and Ms. Harris, but uh, I, I think they'll be considerably less damaging to the nation in their last two years without the support of the Congress uh, than they've been in uh, the first two years. And I even take a, an optimistic uh, view of all the evil they're doing on a daily basis. I think they're turning more and more people uh, away from them. And as we, you know, there's a lot of things that bother the public. I think uh, none bother them more than the overall inflation that is beginning. And of course, they'll see it uh, every week at their gasoline station as the price of gasoline uh, rises quite surely to $4. And that's, that's money they take out of their pocket right 
on the spot. Their electric bill doesn't bother them as much, but there are going to be a lot of things that are going to annoy them. So I'm very confident that the Biden-Harris administration will will not own the Congress in 18 months from now. I just tell you a funny story, which shows sometimes two negatives can actually result in a positive. I had a very bad kidney stone, and I mean, it was huge. And it was stuck. And they were telling me they weren't able to do any operation because the hospital was closed to anything but essential surgery. So they were just going to give me lots of painkillers. Well, I was out on my bike and I wiped out really badly. and I broke my collarbone really severely. They had to put a plate in there, hit the concrete really hard. And during the x-rays, when they were looking at it and trying to decide how to operate on my shoulder, because they considered that essential, they noticed my kidney stone had gone. <laughs> and so apparently the impact with concrete at high speed is one way to get rid of kidney stones. And <laughs> it never came back. And my sister warned me. She said, well, you know, you could open a high impact kidney stone removal clinic, but you'd have to tell people that, that side effects can include death. <laughs> well, lithotripsy kind of works that way, except uh, in a more benign fashion. Well, it was kind of strange that the impact of the COVID shutdown meant that I couldn't have the operation, so I did it to myself. <laughs> not recommended. <laughs> not recommended. No, even a year later, I'm still, eh, that shoulder's not quite back. Dr. Lear, did you have any final questions? No, just a, a gigantic thank you uh, to Dr. Oriana. And I did not know Dr. Teller's uh, quote about, uh, we have a duty to be an optimist, but uh, I've long been one and it works. And, and, and I've known, well, I hadn't heard a saying that you can't get anything done if, unless you are an optimist. That's been true of my life. I mean, I watch uh, pessimists get nothing done. You, you're, you're downtrodden and you really can't optimize your work. So it does pay to be optimistic. And I'd like to leave that thought with our entire audience as well. Yeah, well, that's great. So thanks again, Dr. Orient. And this is Tom Harris and Jay Lear signing out from the other side of the story.